0: Aliens Land here is brought to you by Simple Lift Log. Sponsorships by myself. So what time did you get up this morning?
1: I got up at like 6.30 and I went to bed at 1 last night, so I am seriously sleep deprived.
0: I've been trying to um, go back, you know, by half an hour a day until I'm getting up at a decent time. I think about a week ago I was getting up at 11.30 and now I'm getting up at 9.00. I actually got one of the um oh what's it called sleep cycle? Oh the apps that monitor your sleep? Um I didn't get it so much for monitoring my sleep as much as having an alarm clock that wakes me up when I'm in a lighter oh. sleep than in a deeper
1: sleep. So so do you have to do you have to have it like next to you or do you have it on you or what?
0: You have to have it next to you. Like uh they say that you're supposed to put it at the edge of your bed under a sheet. But okay. I mean, in my case, if I do that, it'll end up falling off. So usually I just put it under my pillow and it seems to work okay. I've noticed okay. that when I get up, it's a lot easier to wake up than before. That's that's good. So when it came to the whole top coder thing, I mean, I didn't quite understand when you said that there was like challenge succeeded. Did that mean that um your problem worked in all the test cases, right?
1: my problem worked in all of the test cases yes okay now, the, cha- the challenge succeeded was on top of someone else's entry not mine
0: oh okay okay see i didn't know if um when you texted me that i didn't know if it meant that um somebody succeeded against yours or if um you
1: succeeded against somebody else yeah neither Okay. <laughs> someone succeeded against somebody else it was actually the it was the, the only successful challenge and it was also the only one to fail like everything else passed system tests mm-hmm. i very rarely see that yeah so did you get a chance to look at that whole java coder thing yet no you i assume that that's what you used when you got 190 or whatever points
0: yeah, that's what I ended up using. And I think um, a big part of it is the fact that it you just paste in the text and it auto-generates all the test cases. Mm-hmm. So instead of all of this time, which I'd been spending before, setting up a main class file to um, copy and paste all of the uh, test cases in, it took at least five minutes on my end in order to mm-hmm. even get that done. At least this way, you just paste it in and it already creates those test cases for you. So you're spending most of your time actually working on the issue. Right. You know, rather than trying to come up with all these tests. Do you compile from within it as well? Yes, you do. It actually... um, I'm doing my issues and, well, problems in Java. So um, it just uses the native Java compiler.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there's an option for C++, right?
0: I believe so. Um, From my understanding, I haven't tried to compile anything on the C++ version. But I know what it does is it creates all of the sample code and test cases in C++. Okay. So, I mean, that's actually, I imagine that's pretty useful. I don't know if you have to configure it to use a specific compiler or GCC or whatever, Mm -hmm. but. I'll um, have to try that later. Yeah, I think it's worth it. And I mean, also, it's good that, um, it's good to have your head clear. It's good mm-hmm. to not have to go in and immediately see the problem and say, "Okay, here's the class definition, here's the method. I have to paste this in. I have to create all of the test cases." You know, that's um, that's how I had been spending my time before, doing mm-hmm. busy work before even trying to attack the problem. Now I can just start thinking about the problem at hand.
1: The other thing that the top relating to topcoder, uh, I did end up submitting. The Swift one. I mean, it's it, it's fairly easy, so it's basically like getting a hundred bucks to learn some Swift. So, what is the criteria for winning the hundred thousand? So, I think that, and I've never done one of the like the long term top coder challenge things but i think that they're going to have a whole bunch of challenges and then each of the challenges is graded and you can get a certain number of points out of the maximum for the first one it was like broken into categories do they seem to understand dictionaries and arrays in swift do they seem to it's very simple stuff and it seemed like it would be fairly trivial to get full points and thus the the $100 for the first 1000 people that are doing it for the 100,000 i think they're going to get harder and uh, so everyone not everyone will get full points Is there anything that
0: you would rather use besides audacity that you don't really feel like spending
1: the money on? I'm very curious about logic, but I don't really know enough about it to know how much time it would save. Hmm. Yeah, the major thing is like, I want to be able to know exactly what was said during different parts of the podcast. So if there's things that I need to edit out, it's really easy for me to find it. And you can do that sort of with a label track in Audacity, but you have to manually label things. What I want is something that does voice recognition and it makes time-stamped labels in, in Audacity or whatever thing I'm using to edit it. So I can either search for it or skim through it really quickly and figure out where my beginnings and endings are for what I'm looking for.
0: I wonder if it would be possible to break up the sound clip into, say, 10-second increments or 30-second increments, run it through a text-to-speech converter, and then have something that tags
1: it? Yeah, what, what I was planning on doing, if I ever had the time, was uh, there's an open-source thing from CMU that does voice recognition. And I don't know how good it is, but it doesn't need to be very good. I just need to have a rough idea of what was being said. And it will go through and actually put a tag at every single word for the time. But And I wanted to go and find a way to make that actually look decent in Audacity as a label track, as a plug-in or something.
0: Uh, would you consider using it for, say, um, captions at any point? Oh, you mean... Actually, what do you mean? Um, my understanding, one of the things that Gruber was talking about on the talk show was eventually getting it
1: where his shows are transcribed So, like, we would have a transcription available on the website, and so I would just go and edit it to correct it and then put it on the blog or whatever. Yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah, maybe. It could work for that, assuming that that it has a decent transcription. And if not, you could have some hilarious results with it. I'm sure that would happen anyway. Even even the good ones have hilarious results sometimes. So let's go into follow-up for this week. The first bit of follow-up is, uh, I kept on saying hearthstone, and I believe it should be hearthstone, like a hearth that you are sitting by and warming yourself. But unfortunately, it's it has an H-E-A-R-T-H, which, for whatever reason, I always think of sounding like hearth instead of hearth. (laughs) So... Consider, uh, the name of the planet,
0: Earthstone. Yeah. So... Yeah, that makes sense.
1: I felt bad about that. The next little bit of follow-up, those that were you listening, and we are talking about how Mark's audio quality had improved, where you may have still heard many, many echoes. And we're not sure if we have fixed this this time, but I think we've made progress at least.
0: Well, one of the lessons here is to actually lean in and talk into the microphone as if, you know, you have the microphone in your hand which it shows how little podcasting I have done ever over the fact that uh, I was about I'd say 3 to 4 feet away from the microphone and just kind of shouting into it it sounded like I was recording it in the bathroom which um I wasn't just to
1: let everybody know <laughs> well that would have been that would've been multitasking <laughs> it's terrible <laughs> If we ever have a time management section, we can include that as a tip. Yeah, and and as a sort of added bonus, uh, we got pop filters, so our P's probably sound better now.
0: Well, I don't think there was an issue with mine before, but that was simply because um, things like plosives seem to stand out more when you're leaning right into the microphone. Which, um, if you're standing far away, you don't get that loud, you know, puh sound. Since good podcasting practice involves leaning in and actually talking right up to the microphone, yeah, that kind of stuff ends up being more
1: important. Okay, next bit of follow-up. This one's a little bit longer. I had talked a bit about the thermal camera last time, the the FLIR 1. You had asked me what kind of material is actually used in the lens for a thermal camera. And the answer to that, at least most of the FLIR lenses are made out of germanium, which is an element, and it provides good transmission of IR in the the 8 to 15 micrometer range. It You might notice that that's a little bit different than the numbers that I gave you last time for the thermal IR range of uh, 1 to 100 micrometers. And it turns out that most of the sensors and most of the lenses don't actually trim, transmit the full range they just they just do the the same range as the germanium usually
0: so like what is the disadvantage for using stuff like this is it just price
1: or are there other things it isn't just price germanium has the property that while it is basically transparent in ir it has a high refractive index so it doesn't work as well for like a regular lens and if you did want to use it, like for a wide-angle lens, um, I think that I think that because of its refractive index, I'm not exactly sure on, on the details, but I think because of that, it is sometimes used for wide-angle lenses where it's then coated with a diamond-like carbon to, in, in order to match it out and deal with the glare. So
0: it sounds like um, the kind of issues that would come up with using germanium make it ideal for things like telephoto then that's possible i i really don't know the answer to that i might have to do more follow up uh so another thing i was looking at was that there are apparently cooled and
1: uncooled sensors like this like what what's the difference between them there's basically two different kinds of thermal cameras and those are cooled and uncooled. Uncooled ones use a thing that's called a micro bolometer in order to measure the heat. And the way that works is for every pixel, it has, an, that pixel has a number of layers. The top layer is an IR absorbing material, and they try and isolate that as much as possible from the rest of the sensor. And then something like a temperature sensitive resistor is used to get the general temperature of the material being bombarded by the IR. A cooled IR camera, the way that it works is it cools the camera to sort of cryogenic temperatures uh, between around 77 and 200 Kelvin. That's negative 321 to negative 99 Fahrenheit, or I guess negative 196 to negative 73 Celsius. And so that's fairly cold, but what it allows it to do is... The noise that would be apparent from the just the heat emanating from the sensor itself is no longer picked up by the sensor, so it can have a more direct observation of the IR photons. They would use materials that then, uh, where the impact occurs, it raises the energy stage, which changes the voltage, conductivity, or current of the sensor.
0: So I take it the uh, GA camera was a uh, cooled camera, and the rest of them weren't am I correct in that assumption?
1: you would be right. the ga camera was in fact a cooled camera that had some consequences so while while it gave a much higher resolution image and it was and the cooled cameras also have better transient properties so so if the temperature changes quickly, you can tell what it is, whereas the uncooled cameras would have a thermal body that would have to adjust before it would be able to detect the temperature change, so a so so a cooled camera can determine changes in temperature that occur quickly, much better
0: and I imagine that a uh, a cooled sensor would also be quite a bit heavier, so you 'd have to deal with an uncooled sensor for things like uh, mobility
1: right and anything that anything that is mobile or that you want to carry around with you would, would have to be uncooled. Uh, the the sensor that we had, that was part of the reason for the weight of the camera, is it had a cooling system inside. It, it also results in you not being able to use the camera right, right away. From the time that you plug it in to the time that you're actually able to use it is about 10 minutes. It, that time is spent cooling down the sensor. So
0: say, for instance, the autonomous driving. Is there any kind of case where a cooled sensor could be used on it?
1: Well, with a vehicle, if you have a big enough vehicle, you can go ahead and use a cooled sensor, and I... I'm pretty sure that there are some cooled sensors that are mounted on humvees and whatnot
0: yeah I was just thinking about the future that uh, if we ever get to the point where there are lots of autonomous vehicles if things like semis would be able to benefit from things like um, an actual cooled sensor rather than an uncooled sensor
1: most of the time a vehicle doesn't need to look out that far when it's using a thermal camera Wh- whenever you look out farther you need a, a basically a bigger sensor size and so if you have or, or a bigger lens, so if you want to keep your lens size small enough to that you're able to mount it and still look out really far, then you need a cooled sensor. If you're using an uncooled sensor, you can achieve a similar effect by greatly increasing the size of your lens, but that becomes impractical after re- relatively short dif- distances. However, with most cars, you you don't need to look out that far. I mean, you want to look out, what, 6 to 10 seconds at least, but that's still not nearly as far as you would generally want to look out in like a military application. Um
0: what kind of differences in distances were you looking at between the autonomous vehicle and the military application?
1: The autonomous vehicle like I said we were just trying to look about 10 seconds out. But the the military one we were trying to look 2 kilometers out at least. So that was the that we wanted to, we needed to be able to recognize if they were a friend or foe at 2 kilometers. Well, you're saying ten seconds out with the vehicle. How fast is the vehicle going again? Well, you're definitely not going to go two kilometers in ten seconds. <laughs> true, true. At least it, not without well, not not without a rocket car. <laughs> autonomous rocket car. Autonomous rocket cars would be awesome. I want an autonomous rocket car. Yeah, I want an autonomous rocket car too. That and a jet. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know what I'd do with it. I mean, there aren't that many salt flats on Earth.
0: Uh, I think I could drive it up here. Yeah? I mean, it's uh, either that or go to Barstow, which isn't that far.
1: If it's made with sturdy enough materials, then you could just bash through other traffic. <laughs> At 500 miles an hour. Yeah, the ramming method. Of course, then you don't need to really be autonomous. You just point it into where, the direction you need to get to. Call it the Hulk. The, the Hulk car, yes. Hulk's Car smash. Exactly. All right. So I think that concludes follow-up. I think today we're gonna we're sort of gonna sort of touch on a more fuzzy topic, uh, since both of us are independent developers. I figured that today we would cover what it's like to be an independent developer versus working in a large company. And I guess we should start off with a. Uh, so how how did you get yourself into the situation of being a solo programmer in the first place?
0: Okay, so uh, how I became a solo programmer. I co-own the company that I'm working for right now. It is a company that does content management systems for adult companies. And um, originally, years ago, I had uh, worked within the newspaper software industry. And I was doing this on the side, just as the idea of, oh, I could make some extra money on the side by selling content management systems to these companies. And eventually, it got to the point where the business was sustainable by itself and i transitioned into doing this full time ah so y- so you
1: were you were actually working still when you started working on it then
0: yeah that's correct there were some long days in the beginning i mean i ah, remember I imagine, back yeah. when i first started that all i did was basically Eat, sleep, breathe, and work. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what you have to prepare for if you want to, uh, run your own business at any point. Definitely timing issues. I would say the closest analogy is like having a child. Yeah, in the beginning, it's, uh, constant care, constant attention, constant oversight, constant worry. And then as time goes on and the business becomes more stable, you don't have to worry about it as much, but you still kind of do like any sort of parent. So how about you? Um, how did you end up transitioning towards this kind of lifestyle for lack of a better term?
1: So before I was working for myself, I was working for General Atomics. That was my, my previous job. And my wife had just gotten her PhD and decided that she was going to get a job, and she got a job in New York. And I determined that I could work basically anywhere. I asked General Atomics if they would be okay with me just con- going and doing some contracting work for them, uh, and they seemed to be okay with that. We'd actually just won another contract at t- that time, so having me on board was sort of still critical. And so we moved up to New York, and I continued doing contract work with uh, General Atomics for a while... When I was at Journal Atomics, I worked mostly by myself as well on the project for most of the time I was there. After I left, I did find someone to sort of take over my position. But even afterward, I made a lot of sort of the guiding choices and I did all of the demonstrations and everything like that. More recently, I haven't done as many contracts with them and I've been working more on my own things like Simple Liftlog and Number Clash, which is not released at the moment. And uh, I'm also working on an Oculus thing that I prefer not to announce at this point. <laughs> Aliens Land here is brought to you by Simple Lift Log. Sponsorships by myself. <laughs> <laughs> Placeholder sponsorships. Now, now that we have a little bit of an idea of how we got here, now let's discuss a little bit of what it's like to be here. And a lot of the, one of the most common things that people ask me when I tell them that I work from home by myself on my own company is, how do you handle how lonely it can get? I will ask you first, what do you do about loneliness?
0: The thing I try to do about loneliness is I try to get out. I um I end up eating out a lot. I end up going to places for lunch and just trying to sit there just so that there's some human interaction. I try and get outside of the house whenever I'm not working Try and go on walks, which I know that doesn't really help with the loneliness, but it does help with the cabin fever. Mm-hmm. Um, try and get hobbies. Do things <laughs> like, like, oh, I don't know, podcasts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically try and do whatever you can to get out and interact with people and connect with friends since you're not going to be getting that from your work life
1: whatsoever. I'm sort of the same way regarding the podcast. It's one of the major reasons that I wanted to do this is that It does. It does help a lot when you're working alone to have somebody to communicate with, and having it scheduled is great too. Because then we, then I know that I'm going to have a time to discuss those things. Other than that, like for the most part, I'm just sort of lonely during the day. I I do do. uh, I do try and use Google Hangout. There's a there's a group of people, a group of techie guys that uh, hang out in the in the room. There's all sorts of discussion that happens there, and that helps a little bit. I try to go out for a drink with my friends every once in a while, but that doesn't happen very often. Uh, Part of the problem is that most of my friends are now dispersed all over the U.S., and working from home, it's hard to make new friends, even in the Borg Collective.
0: Yeah, I I find the same issue. I mean, uh, I live up at the very top of LA County, and none of my old friends live here. So the majority of friends that I have live towards Los Angeles, which is about an hour and a half away from me. And then there's like, in your case, you live away in New York, and then my other friend lives in Seattle. So there isn't a lot of time for that. Mm -hmm. Now, the difference is, I don't find that I get satisfaction from going into the chat rooms the same way that you do. I kind Mm -hmm. of, I look at it almost like
1: noise. Is its it... is it because you can't hear the people or, or see them that, that that's the reason? It doesn't really feel like interaction in the same kind of way. So do you have the same issue with like text messages or, or like uh, IMs and texts and whatnot that, what that you get from people?
0: I think the difference with a text message is that a text message is direct rather than messaging a whole bunch of people. There's a different sort of intimacy when, you know, it's just one person texting another compared to going in a chat.
1: And I can sort of understand that, too. And even in, even in real life, sometimes when I go to parties, I feel like I'm alone at the party.
0: Oh, I get that all the time. And any kind of get-together, meeting, that sort of thing, I feel like I'm alone. And that feeling is worse. I think mm-hmm. I'm one of those people that uh, I'm not really good in groups. You know, anything more than four or five people, it starts to feel, you know... it it doesn't have that same kind of feeling as hanging around a close knit group of people. Now, yeah. i'm not one of those people that completely clam up where i just i can't talk at all. It's just i don't have that same level of comfort
1: and i don't feel like i want to share as much when right. you know it's this large group of people. It's easier to understand your audience when your audience is smaller. And when yeah. you understand your audience better, it's easier to communicate with them. So let me ask you, are you one of those
0: people that, uh, do you have any issue going up in front of a crowd or are you okay with that?
1: Hmm. It's been a long time since I had to do that. I'm normally okay. Once I get going, I'm not an introvert. I I get energy from talking to people. I enjoy talking to people, but I do have uh social anxiety. So while I get energy from talking to people, like a half hour later, I will be cringing over the horrible things that I said and the the next time that i'm that i'm scheduled to go and talk talk to a bunch of people i will get anxiety about that until it actually starts so before and after suck but during is good
0: yeah i mean i find that it's kind of like an interview in a way that uh, mm-hmm. in interview i feel nervous the day before i feel okay going there i feel great when doing the interview and then i feel like a wreck after
1: yeah yeah i'm exactly the same way so getting back to the
0: whole solo programmer thing How do you look at, you know, bosses? Do you feel like you have one boss or do you feel like everybody
1: is your boss in your kind of work? That is that is one of the things when you're working alone, you are no longer accountable to a boss, but you are accountable to your customers. In my case, my customer was, after I started contracting, my customer was General General Atomics. My customers are anyone that wants to buy simple lift log. And I, I think that you probably have a better understanding of this since you have way more customers than I do.
0: Yeah, um, I have, in the case of my software product, we have, you know, several hundred customers that do things like submit support. And there's basically, there's two philosophies that you can take with that. You can either start to feel like everybody's your boss, that everybody is breathing down your neck, or you start to feel like nobody is your boss. For the sake of running a good business, it is generally better to think that everybody is your boss because you'll (laughs) err on the side of correcting things and getting stuff done. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, the people who feel that, you know, nobody is their boss, that opens up a whole can of worms when it comes to, you know, not feeling accountable and not doing anything at all. So really running a business or, you know, being a solo programmer in this sort of way is very much a state of mind. You have to have the
1: right state of state of mind in order for it to be sustainable. I think that like managing your boss, which I believe is something that you can do, you have to you have to sort of take the comments that you get from them and determine if what they're trying to get you to do is something that actually makes sense. So you have to make sure to to listen to your customers But you don't necessarily have to do what they say. And even even in a regular company, if your boss tells you something to do that doesn't make sense, it's I think that it's still your responsibility to tell them, no, that doesn't make sense. We shouldn't be doing that. The difference is your real boss, if they wanted to, could fire you over it, and so can your customers. But if if a couple of your customers fire you, it's not a big deal, but it's a bigger deal if your actual boss fires you.
0: Well, I think in your case, it's much different because you have one big customer that accounts <laughs> for so much of your work. So it actually matters if they fire you. Uh, with my business, it's a bit different since there's uh, a bit more equality where each mm-hmm. customer, you know, yes, different customers pay different amounts of money each month. But I have to look at it in the case of does it make sense? Like, um a lot of times, you know, we get a lot of feature requests. And one of the things I have to weigh is, okay, how many people are going to use this? How long is it going to take? Is it going to break anything for anybody else? And if all of the questions line up correctly, you know, I decide to do it. If it's something that is kind of like, eh, so-so, you know, then we quote them for it and say, oh, this is a customization. This will cost you X amount of money. Do they usually go for it? Um, What what, what percentage of the time do they back out? Oh, I I would say off the top of my head, I would say 60 to 75% of the time they back out.
1: Oh, wow. Oh, When I was working at Scimitar, Scimitar was uh, where I worked before General Atomics. They do credit union software. We... We would get requests from customers and I was insulated from most of it because they had to go through customer support first. But sometimes I would get like these crazy requests and I would tell them, you know, this will probably break this, this, and this. And this and sometimes they would go, Well, do it anyway. And then I would do it, and then it broke that, that, and that. They're like, Take it out, take it out. Well, the difference is well, with Scimitar, you were doing custom code for each specific client, am I correct? Am I right? I was doing custom code for, for individual clients. There was this, there was the overall system software that they had and that was the same for everyone. And then, and then all of the clients had things that we called edits. Those were modified in order to customize the behavior of the way that their transactions and fees and other sorts of things like that worked.
0: When it came to the core part of the software you would have to very carefully weigh in whether or not you can make a change to that core that would affect potentially everybody right
1: right and those kinds of changes were made very rarely i mean they were they were all they were, they were handled more through development triage they they occurred much more slowly than simple things like modifying the way that a fee worked based off of say their last name starts with some sort of combination of letters or something
0: Yeah, in my case, we have this similar kind of abstraction where there's the core product. Everybody runs the same core product. It uses all the same database tables, uses all the same basic management console. And then there's the template layer, which, you know, they can do whatever they want with it. Mm -hmm. And mostly, you know, a lot of the requests we get are changes still to the core part of the product which in that case I have to you know usually weigh pretty carefully to see is this something that will benefit people and if not is it something that will harm people
1: do the customers know that you're how small of a company you are actually
0: yeah they they actually do i think it says on our website
1: yeah that that means that that means that they If they want a feature, they know that you are the guy that they have to convince for that feature. Whereas I was sort of protected by our bureaucracy because they would have to go through a whole bunch of layers in order to get the features that they wanted when I was working for Scimitar. Right. And I I guess that's sort of an an advantage of the the bureaucracy. But there are certainly things that the absence of bureaucracy allows you to do. I was hoping that you had some good things that uh, the lack of bureaucracy have allowed you to do on your product.
0: Uh, well, the lack of bureaucracy allows me to actually go in and rapidly prototype changes without any sort of real tacit approval. Like, for instance, uh, we're going through and we're changing the entire template language that's being used within the product. So I decided, one, over the course of three or four days to just go in and do a sample. And uh, I said, yeah, here, here, we're doing something entirely different. Now, if I were part of a large company it would be most likely that I would have to report to somebody and let them know how my time is being spent. Or in my mm-hmm. case, I can just decide, okay, I'm going to spend the next three days to do this and see whether or not it's going to turn out. So there's a lot more freedom in allowing yourself to try new things without having
1: to worry about the consequences of a manager breathing down your neck for... And you don't have to be reliant on a unmanagement that is very paranoid about some sort of experiment failing because you've wasted company money or something.
0: I don't think so much with larger companies. I mean, I don't really know for sure. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking of Google and their 20% time. But I know with, you know, the mid and small companies that uh since they don't seem to have as much money to spare that they end
1: up being much more strict when it comes to time management. And and sometimes there's just sort of arbitrary bureaucracy-related things. Another problem with Scimitar that I had, and I'm pretty sure that a lot of other companies also have this problem, is that I was not – because I was not allowed to do anything with my computer, really, uh, other than use a terminal – there was this time management logging customer complaint system that they had and they transitioned from a in-house built one to one of those big corporate ones and it was really awful. One of the problems was that when you are displaying your support requests and everything on the screen, it didn't it just didn't give you enough space to even like see the whole thing and when you were logging your time it didn't give you enough space to put everything to see the whole thing that you were logging and collect uh, so you couldn't collect it and so I wrote a browser plugin that went and parsed the DOM tree and then displayed a new page that allowed you to actually see everything properly and uh, have it nice and nice to look at and I gave this to the, the other people in my group, and they all started using it and thought it was great, and it improved productivity. And then management heard about it, and I got in trouble because it was unauthorized software that I had written that I put on my machine. <laughs> So in the end, did they end up actually using it in any sort of capacity at all, or did they kind of throw it out of out of spite? It basically was removed. Eventually, they eventually the actual software that you are required to use got better. That was around the time that I left.
0: Yeah, that's definitely one of the nicer things about being a solo, solo programmer is that you get to choose your own
1: toolkit. Definitely, yeah. Sort of on the the flip side of bureaucracy is another protection that they have is making sure that your code goes through a process before it is, uh, actually goes into production. How, how has working alone impacted your code quality?
0: I'm inclined to think that it's actually helped in some ways, because one funny little thing about you know small to mid-sized companies is that, in a lot of cases, their testing is terrible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That, that's one of the dark secrets of business. I guess it really depends on the company. Some, sometimes Sometimes there's processes in place that help, though.
0: Sure. You know, and that's, you know, the difference between a good company and a bad company when it comes to IT. Right. You know, I tend to think that larger companies are the ones that actually have systems in place for code quality. And the way I look at it is that helps them get big in the first place by not shipping crap. Right. Now, being a solo programmer, you can run into the same kind of thing where since you have total freedom, you can either choose to not test at all and do absolutely nothing along those lines and just deal with cowboy. whatever issues come up. Yep, Yeehaw. you can you can go total cowboy. You can embrace your inner code cowboy. Or you can go the other route and basically do your best to try and come up with test cases and, you know, scenarios to make sure that whatever you do doesn't end up shipping to a bunch of clients and
1: breaking a whole bunch of things. So since you're by yourself, what do you do to take care of things that would have been taken care of by code review?
0: What I tend to do, for the most part, is I try and write tests, especially for things that are crucial. I recall saying this, I think it was on the first podcast, that that there are some systems that are more important for than others. And the most important system, I think, in the case of the software, is the auto-updater. Yeah, if that breaks, you're screwed. Yeah, it, reason being, of course, you know, for... For those people who are listening, you break the auto-updater, you push out an update, and then you cannot push out updates to other people after that. Yeah. So, you know, so when it comes to the auto-updater, the code is basically... It is tested with as many test cases as I can think of. And, you know, that part of the code, it's divided. I try and, you know, modularize it as much as possible into, into all the different tests that run before an auto update is pushed out. Mm-hmm. Basically test, test, test as much as you can. And, yeah. um, then the other, you know, the other thing I do is try and have auto update scripts to make sure that when I push an update from an older version,
1: that that update goes seamlessly. Right. Trying to automate as much as possible. Yeah, is, trying to automate is pretty, as much as possible. It's pretty useful in making sure that fewer things break. After the
0: update process is um, tests to the member's side, the front-facing area. Since my business is basically a B2B, those businesses end up having end-users, so whatever code that I have, which, um, would show to an end user is also thoroughly tested. Like, mm-hmm. um, I try and do things like, um, I have it do things like logging notices and logging warnings and sending me, you know, thing sending me things along that line. And you review those all the time? I review them all the time and end up fixing those notices and warnings that
1: come up. When something does go wrong, how is that, how does that manage then?
0: see in this case when something does go wrong on a live client site usually in my case i'm still editing in place and most of the time the nice thing about the software is that we do monthly you know we try and do monthly or bimonthly updates however mm-hmm. there are clients who ask for fixes you know who ask for bug fixes and whatnot they end up getting uh, software from the trunk whenever mm-hmm. there is a bug fix so in a lot of cases, um, we do end up having some degree of shakedown before, you know, we push a large update. So there's tests that are done both locally and on your clients or just. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Okay. However, a lot of the time, um, you know, if something really wrong happens, you know, I do have to end up fixing it in place and then committing, hmm. but that's relatively rare. And I think part of. Becoming a better coder is having more of those moments where it's rare. You know, knock on wood. I haven't had anything that's uh, broken an update. Thankfully, that's pretty bulletproof. Also, I haven't done anything that uh, causes, you know, an actual fatal error. At worst, you know, the worst error, the worst thing that I've had come up is, um, I ended up getting a notice. Like uh, on a client's website that it shows that there's like a PHP notice or something like that showing on their front page, which, you know, I correct that pretty quickly. I can imagine how they
1: would not like that.
0: It's you have to balance things. Part of the thing about writing tests is that you can write tests all day and you can do practically nothing but tests. But the compromise is that you get nothing done uh yeah the the difference you know part of the appeal of going cowboy is the idea that you know your throughput goes through the roof that you mm-hmm. end up doing a rapid prototype on a project and that project ends up uh you know you have something that's kind of in alpha form within the course of a week, mm-hmm. but it's getting to that point you know of course, getting to the point
1: of having something that's shippable takes a lot longer. So what do you do to balance that then how do you how do you how do you balance it so you're doing the correct task at the right time? I think the
0: question you mean to ask is how do I balance it between you know spending most of my time testing and most of my time uh, coding? It is a delicate, precarious balance. Let me just say that I kind of try and uh you know I kind of try and wing it in my head to see you know does this module need more testing versus less testing
1: now what about what about things that are not specifically related to the work time balancing act but just the making sure that you get stuff done at all at least how do you make sure that you're your own boss why not just go to the park all day
0: The thing about that is that if you're the type of person where all of the time you decide that, oh, I would rather go to the park, or oh, I'd rather watch TV, (laughs) if you're that type of person, you should probably not be a solo programmer. What I find is that, yeah, there are some times where I don't feel like doing something, but the counterbalance for me is that sometimes I get the feeling that I just want to work all day. Mm-hmm. Or I want to, you know, I have some kind of exciting solution in my head and I want to see it out until two or three in the morning. Which is
1: problematic when you need to wake up uh, early.
0: Well, but that's one of the nice things about being a solo programmer is that you may not necessarily need to wake up as early, depending that's on, true. you know, depending Most on what time. kind of depending accountability on, you have. Depending on
1: who you are, what your client, who, how your clients are, uh, if you have kids. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, is your client like that? Like, uh, in the case of
1: GA, do they expect you to be up at a certain time? No. Th- I mean, when I was actually working for them, everyone would sort of, their, their time into the office would sort of creep. So, we would be requested, you know, you should probably get in by 9.30. And then it would sort of creep up until... T- 10 10 and then around 10 30 when when most of the people in the group were started getting that time they get a reminder you know you, you should probably try getting in at 9 or nine thirty. <laughs> and that's sort of how it worked there when I, when I was working when i was working by myself uh just doing contracting for them there was no limitation at all i just had to submit the submit the projects and make sure that i was available for phone calls
0: well you know the other nice thing is since you're three hours ahead of them You know, you can can wake up at noon. Yeah, Yeah, you can wake up at noon and it'll be nine o'clock for them and they'll
1: be thrilled. Exactly. I do have sort of other issues with it's it's not not wanting to get stuff done, as in I, I want to go and work and whatnot, but a lot of times that if I don't have a plan on what exactly I want to do, I will sort of twiddle around for a while and waste time. So I found that In order to make sure that I get enough stuff done during the day, I'll take my to-do list and I'll put the things that I want to get done the next day on my calendar during specific time slots. I make sure that I actually do those things during those time slots and I make sure to give myself plenty of time, like more time than I would actually need. So that way, when things inevitably come up during the day, I can take care of those things after I finished one of those little slots. And that seems to work reasonably for me.
0: Yeah, that's actually exactly what I do. That's exactly what I do. Whatever I have scheduled, like, for instance, if there's some kind of client support where I need to do a development change, mm-hmm. um, I schedule it for, you know, the next day or the day after or whatnot. And I make sure that looking at my calendar, here are the things that I need to do today at bare minimum. And I think that helps in a pretty
1: big way. It reduces the cognitive load on what you need to be thinking about if you've already planned it. Speaking of cognitive
0: load, how do you deal with kids at home? I know that being a programmer, that you tend to get into a mode where, you know, after half an hour, you're looking at an issue and, you know, your mind your mind is acclimated to whatever kind of issue you're trying to solve. How can you actually solve problems when, you know, you have kids at home and you're
1: constantly distracted? It's really hard. When I first came to New York about four years ago, I I had determined that, you know what, I I don't want to, my son is young, He at the time he was uh, less than a year old, I want to, I don't want to send him into a, a daycare yet, so what I'll do is, I will work at night. I just ended up being tired all the time. I tried to work during his naps, but I found that just as I was starting to get into something, he would wake up. Eventually we, we went and took him to a daycare and I got much more productive because I was able to sleep. <laughs> more recently Seth started kindergarten and with my, and my wife's parents are in town watching Miranda, though she does mostly stay here. So I do get distracted periodically, which does kill time, but I mean, when I was working at GA, I got distracted by other things. So the distraction amount total is sort of comparable as long as I'm not the one, I'm, as long as I'm not the only one that's responsible for uh, looking after her. So how many
0: issues or, you know, how many types of issues are there where you can pretty much say, I'll handle this in a moment versus there being issues that you have to deal with right
1: now? What do you mean exactly? Like, with my kids?
0: Well, yeah, not just your kids, but also, say, when you were working at GA. Was it the type Uh, of environment where you could, you know, just focus on one issue, you know, for, say, an hour or two hours at a time? Or did you have to multitask a lot?
1: At GA, I basically was able to work on my problems by myself for long periods of time. And the interruptions I'm talking about are less work-emergency-related interruptions, And more someone is walking by me in the hallway or someone is talking in the hallway. And I have, I have a problem where if someone is asking a question that is, that I know the answer to. My brain will automatically go and try and think of what uh, that is so I can respond to them, even if like they were asking it out. And they're like if two people are having a conversation in the hallway and I know the answer to their technical question and they are having trouble with it, even though I should just be working on my work, I will go and let them know what the answer is, which will then uh, distract me. That was less of an issue at General Atomics for a couple of reasons. One, people sort of tended to work more independently there uh, than they did at Scimitar. And, and two, we had actual offices at General Atomics, which sort of divided up the chatter better. So I wasn't hearing as many of the technical conversations that were going on around me as I was at uh, Scimitar.
0: Uh, did they allow headphones or earphones at Scimitar?
1: Yes, uh, they did. What about the companies that you used to work at? Did they all allow headphones?
0: Some of them did, and some of them didn't. I think the first one that I had worked for, Apollo, didn't allow headphones at all, since there was always some kind of interaction, Mm -hmm. and that was always terrible, because there would be, um, since it was one big open floor space, you didn't get an office at all, and -hmm. you couldn't wear headphones, so you would hear any kind of chatter that was going on. There was a sales guy that used to sit right behind me and I would hear the calls that he would put out. Ooh. And it just reminded me of office space. You remember <laughs> the, uh, the receptionist that, uh, at the beginning of the movie that you would hear just over and over yeah. and over again? Yeah. It was exactly like that.
1: Yeah. I, I definitely prefer offices, though that's almost impossible to come by these days. So some companies have sort of a compromise with the, with the distraction kind of thing. Google, for example, I know they have an open layout, so everyone would get their desk, and you could if you wanted to hear uh, other people. But they also have little private rooms that you can go to, and you can just take your laptop and work there if you need some quiet time. So I, I think that's a decent compromise for in the corporate environment. And I mean, that's changed, especially
0: considering the fact that you have a laptop. Imagine back in the past, you know, two thousand five, where most of business is happening on a desktop. You can't exactly move your computer.
1: Yeah, that's a that's another th- funny thing about Scimitar. I had this like dinky, I want to say, fifteen-inch monitor that I was working on, and I I asked them, hey, can I bring my own monitor in? And they're like, no. I I I I will pay for it. I will bring it in. I will even give it to you. If I can work on this. And they're like, no, if you had one, then everyone else would want one. And the other thing is like, there was, there were these test machines and they cost, they didn't cost very much compared to programmer time. It was like $3,000 for this machine. And like, they were so hell bent on like not getting another one or even though it was needed. And I spent so much time waiting around for things because the machine wasn't available. And so much time cleaning out my directory because it had more than, like, the 10 megabytes of space that they wanted you to keep in it or something. It was ridiculous. You know, it's too bad that XKCD comic wasn't out at the time. You could have
0: got a shirt that said, I'm not slacking, my code is compiling. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, it's funny how businesses do that, that, you know, they're not willing to spend the money on hardware Even though it'll, in the long run, it'll save a whole lot of money on developer time. And that's one of the mistakes that I made sure in my company to not do. To actually spend the money on hardware.
1: So I guess you have a a gadget budget or something?
0: The way it works is, uh, I have one of my credit cards goes towards a gadget budget. And, you know, if I want a new piece of hardware, I end up getting it. And, you know, the company puts like 500 or 750 bucks a month towards it.
1: And this is, I'm sure, paid out many dividends in the the usability of your software on various devices and making sure everything works properly, right?
0: Yeah, I I tend to think so over all the tablets and phones and whatnot that I've received that um, I think it's definitely useful if you're trying to do a piece of software that's front facing to a lot of people.
1: Cool. So in your company, you have a you have you have three total people that work at the company, right? Yeah, yeah, right now. That means the division of labor is such that how how does the division of labor work there? The division of labor works
0: in that I do primary development and software, and then I also do you know the type of support that requires a code change. Then we have one employee who does solely support, like, for instance, customer submitting issues saying, I don't know how to do X or I don't know how to do Y. He Mm. handles that. And then my business partner handles sales and anything that is design-related. Okay. So the nice thing about it is that it's a company where there isn't a whole lot of overlap, which makes it a whole lot more effective from a productivity standpoint.
1: Being an even smaller company than your company is, I I sort of run into the situations where I need to do a whole bunch of things that if it weren't just me, I would not that I would not spend my time doing I spend, I spend a lot of time doing things that seem like wastes of time when I'm doing them, even though they're absolutely necessary. Like, Writing contracts and proposals, for instance, takes a ton of time, and I'm not getting paid for that. So I have to bump up my rates to compensate. For non-contracting things, I have to take care of administrative tasks like setting up accounts. So I suppose that would be sort of in your domain and your company anyway. And I have to do things like write app store descriptions, write web page descriptions, advertising text, even though I don't really do much advertising at the moment. Even things that are just development, I have to wear multiple hats. Like normally I wouldn't go and make my own web pages for something. When I was at General Atomics, we had a person that made our web pages, but now I have to make all of my own web pages for my products. I have to do that kind of thing. And that impacts the amount of time that I can spend on the actual products themselves. Oh yeah, I can
0: totally relate there. And there are some things within my company that I find that I'm, I'm starting to reach into the realm of design a little bit. Because, you know, Mm -hmm. there's been a big shift towards responsive design. My business partner isn't that great at doing that. So in a lot of cases, I'm troubleshooting the CSS for different devices of different widths, etc, etc.
1: So is there a large technical component to responsive design?
0: With responsive design, it's basically conditional CSS. Okay. That what you do within the CSS, you're just specifying that this CSS runs only when the uh, device width is over under a specific resolution. So what you end up doing is you end up having tags that work differently depending on the uh, width and the height of the device. Yeah. So this is how you support mobile stuff. In in a lot of cases. Yeah. One of the things we're doing right now is we're switching over our administrator interface to be more friendly to mobile and one of the things that I've been doing is um, I've been changing the divs so that on a regular device, they work kind of like a table within HTML. In a table, you have your rows and your columns and whatnot. So in CSS, there is a specific element that uh, makes your actual div tags work like a table within CSS exclusively. And the reason you can do that, and the reason that's even useful, is that you can make a conditional, where on the uh, desktop device, it divides itself into columns, but then on a mobile device, it ends up shrinking down, so that each item is on its own line. Okay. So you're basically you're, uh, you're reflowing the page, and you're reworking the page so that it ends up being more vertical, where you have to scroll more on a, a mobile device. Mm -hmm. And then there are also things you do, like, for instance, some elements on on a mobile device you don't want to show at all. So you have conditional CSS where you set the display to none on the mobile device and you set it to show on the desktop device and vice versa. Sometimes you'll have elements that you'll want to show on a mobile device, but not on a desktop device. What kinds
1: of things will you show on a mobile, but not a desktop?
0: Uh, Well, for instance, if you're going to have a separate menu... On a mobile device. Like, if you look at our webpage, the ALH.fm website, you'll see that when you shrink it down, that you have the whole hamburger icon for, uh, you know, having the menu of stuff on the website. And you're only going to want to show that on a mobile device. Mm -hmm. So they're using a piece of conditional CSS that shows the hamburger icon only when the display is beneath a certain
1: width. I see. Is there stuff... The, when you're working by yourself, where you just wish, man, I suck at this. Can't I just give it to someone else? And then you think, no, I can't give it to someone else. I'm the only one that does this. Sometimes I get that feeling. It's not so much that I'm the only
0: person that can do this. Well, sometimes it is when it comes to something specifically technical. But a lot of the time, the issue I run into is that I look at it and I say, I am the best person to do this, even though me doing it isn't going to be that great. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that, um, it is a blessing and a curse when it comes to, you know, having a business in that you have to deal with it and you have to get better at it. It's good. in that you become more of a Renaissance sort of person, you know, a person, a jack of all trades, you end up learning
1: more. That's certainly true.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And the nice thing about learning more is that if you learn more, you are conducive to learning more, you know, mm-hmm. more things in other fields. And uh, it prevents your brain from rotting away by the time you're
1: 50. I like my brain. I want it to stay there. Yeah. Even so, there's some things that that I need to sort of pound into my brain over and over again. So one of those things is marketing and Marketing and, to a lesser extent, graphic design, As I don't have to do very much of it. And I intentionally pick projects, at least design-wise, uh, that don't require fancy graphics in order to look nice. But it would be nice if I could have someone else be doing that for me, even though I would be learning. E- even, if I just do a, an, even if I just do the first run and then I, get a, and then I got a professional designer to make it better or, or to polish it or something would probably be helpful. But I just sort of have to struggle through it. And one of the things
0: you're always asking yourself when you have a solo business like this is you're asking, what is your best use of time? Mm-hmm. and perhaps your best use of time is learning how to
1: design better. And I'm sort of at the point where I'm realizing that my best use of time is probably marketing. It is something that is very difficult for me to do not because I don't know how to market something, but any time that I think of like putting out writing to the major blogs and putting out a, or putting out a press release or anything like that, it it makes me feel like Arrogant and like, well, this is a pretty simple thing. I, I, I don't want them to get annoyed. And it's, it's sort of related to the social anxiety thing that I had mentioned earlier. And I, I feel as though if I sort of take baby steps towards it, that eventually I will get good enough at marketing to be able to have my own apps be downloaded in accordance to their quality. Do you think this is also
0: a uh, geek slash hacker ethos thing where um,
1: you're not supposed to be too cocky? I don't think that's really a, a geek slash hacker ethos thing because there are certainly plenty of cocky geeks. Just look at any time anytime there's a Slashdot article that even mentions intelligence and Slashdotters will come out of the woodwork to go, I only have a 150 IQ and and stuff like that. So I, I think it's more along the lines of a lot of geeks don't want to represent something aside from maybe themselves as being better than they actually are. In order to have effective marketing, it's hard to be successful without sort of, without, even if you aren't directly saying that it's better than it is, it's hard to do it without implying that it is better than it is. Maybe another thing within geek culture
0: is that if you claim something is better than it actually is, then there will always be somebody to come out of the woodwork to challenge it. Or in marketing, it really isn't the case. That's true.
1: Most people don't bother arguing with these things. It's only the geeks that would, the only the geeks that would care if it actually is as good as you're purporting it to be.
0: Yeah, the same type of people that care that Han shot first.
1: <laughs> yes, he did, though are there any other problems that you can think of with uh being a solo developer that we haven't touched on yet
0: well besides the testing the loneliness the drive that you have to have in order to work soul and alone besides having odd hours
1: (laughs) 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 what about the general difficulty it is to sort of get your name out there I haven't really had much of a problem with that. Funny enough. That's oh, never well. been much of an issue. So how, how did, how did your business partner handle that? You just had previous connections then? Yeah. In his case, he had previous connections
0: because he was doing design for those people. And then in the case of our business, there was a big board, which has most of the uh, people with an adult that actually go there. And when we announced our product, it actually had pretty big
1: fanfare. In the beginning, oh. so wow, well, lucky you! I wonder if it's different for that kind of thing, where there's a well, more to, more of a well-known place to go for clients than, like, say, launching something in the app store. Or maybe there is a process for finding your clients properly. Um, I
0: tend to think it's the difference between a general versus a niche thing. That uh, if it's a niche business that there are usually people that congregate in some
1: sort of way okay. but, you know, pertaining to their niche. I, I guess that makes sense and it sort of it sort of explains part of the problem with unread. So recently there was the indie popclip where everyone started talking about in independent software development and if it's sustainable on the App Store and everything someone called out is are there any people that only develop for iOS and get all of their money based off of software for iOS and the guy who wrote uh, unread Jared Sinclair wrote up an article basically responding to that talking about how he worked for he worked on Unread which is an RS reader for about 6 months after it had been released for about 6 months he posted his numbers so it's basically a full year that he's been doing it and the numbers ended up being something like uh, thirty thousand dollars for the iOS version or not the iOS the iPhone version and another ten thousand for the iPad version and this was despite being featured by Apple it was despite having good press it sort of made people wonder if how difficult it is in this day and age to have something be successful on the app store. If, if it's a problem with sort of non-niche generalized software like an RSS reader be an RSS is actually a little bit niche. So maybe but a little bit niche, but it's not as niche as like your product. So RSS isn't that, isn't that niche. And I, I guess it could be considered more of a generalized. It's sort of, it's more of a, a general software that is one of the smaller general softwares.
0: Yeah, fair. However, I mean, you look at, um, there were lots of people who used Google Reader. And in yeah. turn, there, um, when Google Reader went away, there were a whole bunch of things that came out. Go- but Google
1: canceled it because they didn't have enough people. Are you sure that's the reason they canceled it? Oh, uh, that's true. Google claims they canceled it because they didn't have enough users. Okay. So that that's better. But Though of course. Supposedly, supposedly. All throughout Reader's History, they tried to cancel it a whole bunch of times. There's a nice article about that uh, that I can link in the show notes about the history of Google Reader and how many times that they tried to cancel it and how many different people. And in In fact, everyone that was on the Reader team, no one was ever assigned to the Reader team. They all were people that wanted to be on based off of 20% projects.
0: Well, something else to remember as well is what is a large enough client base for Google is different than that of a small company. This Google's is one of those true. companies that works in scale, you know, like yeah. an Apple or like a Microsoft. So, I mean, looking at that, that yes, it may be niche for them, but there's enough of a following that, you know, there are plenty of businesses that have sprung up to try and take their place.
1: Right. One of the things that seems to be happen- happening happening with more general software, though, is it, it's is the prevalence of really cheap and free software. Ver, what do you think of software that is cheap or free versus more robust and more full featured stuff, or even stuff that where their feature is just a nice design, but they have to pay? <laughs> <laughs> I tend to
0: think that the cheap and the free alternatives to software are the sort of things which most people are going to use because most people end up making their purchases based off of price. There's always going to be some sort of niche market for, you know, a product that is more expensive. It's just a matter of, um, you know, what percentage of the marketplace you can capture having a product that is more expensive.
1: Are there, are there cheap and free competitors for your product?
0: Uh, Yeah, there are actually quite a few. Like um, what a lot of people do within my industry is they just set up WordPress and uh, oh. they try, yeah, they pretty much try and shoehorn WordPress to do, you know, as much as as possible within that software, you know, try to shoehorn it to do what it's not supposed to do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: However, from their perspective, since it's free, it doesn't really matter. And they're not spending money.
1: Right. That sounds like it would be pretty awful.
0: And then also my understanding is there are some plugins for WordPress as well. Like some of them are paid where it's not even, you know, it's not monthly at all. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that kind of, uh you know, end up adding to WordPress's functionality. So there's always stuff like that. You know, people who are like mom and pop shops who are just starting out, it makes sense to them because one of the biggest constraints for them is capital. Right. So it makes sense for them to set up on, you know, some kind of cheap offering. Mm -hmm. Now, with our offerings, since, you know, we have software that software and support that is monthly, you know, has a monthly payment, it's more expensive. However, because we're getting money from people who need specific features,
1: who are willing to pay for it. So these people already have an established client base usually before they come to you? Yeah, they either have an
0: established client base or they are companies which are trying to plan ahead. That they're saying that they're looking to say, okay, what happens six months from now when we have a decent infrastructure in place? Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to want to transition software in the middle of it. Let's just go with
1: something that a big client is already using. Do you see the the cheap and free alternatives encroaching on you at all in the future? Uh, yes. And in part,
0: I think the the issue with it is, one, that uh, cheap offerings tend to have a tendency to get better with time which I think is, uh, you know, it's a truism of all software, that all free software ends up improving, which I think that's part of the reason the price of software ends up going down. There's that, and there's also, in the case of my industry, there's the whole issue with piracy and whatnot, ah. which, uh, you know, which makes people tend to be cheaper.
1: So I was sort of curious, have you tried to do, have you tried to explore using your software in other situations like have you tried like does, is it applicable to other markets where that would need a content management system
0: uh we have had a few in the past we actually had uh, one person who set up uh mma fighter fan website using it <laughs> <laughs> oh i love that that guy was one of my favorite guys just because uh, of you know that is just so be- perfect you know, just because of the fact that I could say that, oh, yeah, our software can be used for other things like, you know, <laughs> you know, like, right. this. it's something that I would love to transition to at some point. It's just that, um, you know, when actually coding a product, that you have to listen to your customers and you have to listen to their suggestions. And because 99% of the customers are using the software in the specific fashion in the specific industry most of those requests end up being tailored towards that specific
1: industry. Ah, okay. Yeah. Sucks, but it's life. Getting back to App Store-related things, what do you think that people like Jared can do about their position in the App Store and getting money from their product? See, that's really a hard call. I mean, I look
0: at it that since the price of software within something like an app store is going to go down, at least for, you know, stuff that isn't very niche. There's not much you can do apart from trying to monetize it in other ways. Like, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of, in the case of RSS readers, there are a lot of RSS readers that are free. And, uh, you know, one of the ways around that is to have it be ad supported. Right. Have it, you know, have it use ads, but then, you know, use some kind of in-app purchase where you pay five bucks or whatever to unlock, you know, to not show ads.
1: It seems to, it seems to work for some people better than others. And most of the time, unless you have a very large user base, you, you don't really get enough ad traffic. Well, first you have to actually get served an ad. If they're not willing to serve you an ad, then there's not much you can do about it. And, because of that, a lot of people actually have their little banner space, and then they subscribe to Google ads, and they subscribe to Apple ads, and they subscribe to – I think there's one more that a lot of them do. And they, they have to do all those because there's the, a good possibility they're just not going to get served an ad. A, a, lot, a lot of those easy-to-integrate ad systems also don't pay very much uh, per click. So it can be tricky.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's ultimately going to have to be worked out within
1: the App Store. I think there may be more to going free with in-app purchase. The, an example is, well, one, there was there's Overcast that was recently released that seemed to do well with that model. But another example is the, uh, the Stuart Hall experiment. The Stuart Hall experiment, the, the guy decided to write in one night a seven-minute workout app that basically goes through a number of exercises and tells you how to do them and has a timer they did an experiment and they got about three times more sales when they went free with in-app purchase as they had just having it uh, be pay and that seems to be sort of sort of universal
0: Right. And I think what they're trying to do is that, uh, if it's free, it's more likely to show up on a list somewhere mm-hmm.
1: as opposed to being buried to the bottom of the app store where, you know, nobody finds it. Right. If you have a lot of downloads, then you're, then you have more visibility. And if you have more visibility, that you're going to have more people buy the stuff that's in your app because they've downloaded it and have seen it.
0: Yeah. However, um, you had mentioned overcast. I tend to think that Overcast is a bit of an aberration, in part because of the fact that Marco Arment is pretty popular and has a following already.
1: So Marco Marco is popular, and he he's very fond of saying, the stuff that I make that I, that didn't that wasn't good enough didn't do very well. And the the sort of response to that is well, but you still had a a strong advantage, and I, I'm not saying it's an undeserved advantage. He's he spent a long time building his audience, and there's certainly value in that after he's built an audience like that it 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 makes something that may have just sat in the app store collecting dust be found and be forwarded to other people and seen by a whole bunch of people it's 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 a catalyst that a lot of apps just don't have even if so even even if you if you have two apps one is then they're both good and one has a catalyst that's the to to get uh, viewership that's the one that's going to win while while the, what you produce needs to still be good you also need a way to have it be found
0: i would even say that something good that has an audience will win over something great that doesn't
1: have an audience it right. just
0: has to be good enough
1: even things that have less marketing but are cute or topical are things that get downloaded a lot and An example of that is that silly Hordor keyboard that someone made where it's on Android and all it does is go Hordor no matter what you type. And the same guy made another one that was I am Groot. (laughs) And these are are both on Google Play. And I I believe one of them is being sold for 99 cents. And I'm very sad that that probably makes way more money than my app. I thought when you were going to mention cute
0: that you were going to go to Flappy Bird.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, that's another example, but with Flappy Bird, it's with Flappy. I mean, it has a cute name and I'm sure that helped with its popularity, but it sat in the app store for a long time before anyone paid attention to it. And it wasn't until people sort of started playing it as a joke that it gained tons of popularity. Well, there's your
0: marketing angle.
1: Maybe, maybe I just need to, maybe I just need to keep it up on pop culture and make one-off apps that are related.
0: Yeah. Well, there was the blog
1: about, um, you know, trying to limit the amount of time you put into an app. That's another way that you can work in the app store is you can diversify. A good example of someone that does the diversification right is uh, the underscore David Smith, who I think has posted more than 80 apps to the app store. So in addition to the marketing that he does via having a blog and podcast, he he diversifies and tries every single possible way to make an app in hopes that some of them find some traction and then he goes and further develops those. And I, I think that's another way that you can sort of make a living as an independent developer in the App Store.
0: Yeah, or just pretty much trying to... uh do something that nobody else has done before and not go into a crowded market.
1: And, and that's sort of, that's sort of one of the things that uh, Marco had done with his voice boost and silence removal, although it turns out that someone had done that before him anyway, I guess he was the first. Then that's an example of like his, his, uh, his popularity advantage working for him, even though he was technically not the first one to do something like that. He's the one that got recognized for it because he had an audience.
0: Well, I wasn't even thinking that. I was thinking more of those special type of apps. Like, uh, I believe, uh, Apple had showcased apps that are good for, you know, deaf kids or art, autistic children or, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the apps on the store, you know, they charge a pretty penny for that.
1: Yeah. That's, that is, that does seem like it would be another way to go. And that, that's sort of getting into the niche thing again.
0: Yeah. I guess it's a matter of how niche
1: are you willing to go? A long time ago, one of the highest grossing apps, uh, and also one of the apps that had, because it was able to charge a lot of money for the app, uh, was a a security camera management app that basically looked at various security cameras. And it was a very focused need, but they were able to charge a good amount for it. And since I had had a lot of experience integrating those kinds of cameras, I, I had considered making one of my own that had some nicer features with it.
0: Remember when maps on the app store used to be really expensive, like uh the maps that had turn by turn directions
1: oh yeah, like yeah, I remember
0: that, and now yeah. they don't
1: yeah it's some you know it's something similar to that right, and well then that's another problem with those kinds of things as soon as soon as you get sherlocked, you're screwed well, do something that won't get sherlocked <laughs> <laughs> you have to be popular enough. That people want to pay for it and download it, but not so popular that some big player will copy it. Though you can hope that the big player will buy you instead, and that can be your way of making money. And, and I think, I, and I actually had, and that isn't actually a, another way for an independent developer to make money is to to hope that they will eventually get purchased by somebody. <laughs> yep, because hope pays.
0: Hope pays your rent. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, Well, I actually have two friends here in New York where their companies were purchased, uh, and it was basically the, just them working on it.
0: Nice. Nice.
1: So it does happen. I just don't know if it's worthwhile uh, making it your business strategy and hoping that you have enough money to get by until you're purchased. Oh, I'm reminded of Yo. The, the funny thing about Yo is that it now that it has so much media exposure, it will probably do pretty well. And that's what they were hoping for. Yep. And and that's probably even what their VC was hoping for. They're like, promote they, they probably gave them the money and then said something along the lines, you need to tell everyone that you got this money. People will consider it so crazy that you'll get tons of exposure, and then people will start using your API.
0: Yep, they'll start using your API and then round two of
1: funding will come in. Exactly. Why didn't I think of yo? There are there are some use cases for and and actually it's it's sort of when I was uh developing my my stupid little Android app um I thought yo is what I kept going through my head I'm like, oh my God, I'm reimplementing yo uh the what I'm talking about is i made a i I made an app my my wife and my kids go to bed earlier than I do, and sometimes she needs my attention, and so uh I made an app that will. Turn con- connect to my computer. As soon as she launches it, it will connect to my computer and turn on and off my lights and say a message to me saying that she needs me for something, <laughs> which is basically yo, except that yeah. it's linked to something.
0: Well, it's just yo didn't have a desktop app. Yeah, so I mean it's entirely understandable.
1: I could have I could have gone through IFTTT and yo. But I wanted something that was not reliant on the external internet actually working. Yeah.
0: All that. And you wanted to rely on something that didn't rely
1: on Yo. (laughs) Yeah. It it would take me, it took me less time to do that than it would have taken me to learn the Yo API anyway. I can't believe that Yo has an API. (laughs) Everything has an API. My Cheetos (laughs) are going to have an API soon. The Orange Finger API that that would make a good name for a software company <laughs> orange finger orange, orange finger API orange
0: finger software company
1: there we go if I ever need to rename Kelling software
0: yeah my software name was something that uh my business partner had already it was a domain oh. that he was sitting on similar to the podcast how the podcast yeah, so similar
1: wasn't, to yeah similar to aliens land here
0: yep I guess I'm just terrible with naming. That's one of the things I'll need to improve as a business person, coming up with good brands and
1: good names. If you were not an indie and instead you were a big company, what would you do to... What what sorts of things can you do when you're a big company to get around the problems that you have when you're a smaller indie trying to make a buck?
0: It, It basically comes to bundling your software with something. Like, in the case of, I mean, Google, Facebook, Twitter, all of these sites, their software is bundled with ads and, you know, ad relevancy. Then there's Apple, which is bundled with hardware. Mm-hmm. And then there's Microsoft, which is bundled with nothing.
1: Microsoft is bundled with Air. Well, Microsoft bundles things with Windows, which it still charges for, and it's unclear how much longer they'll be able to do that. Microsoft may have to start sort of going in the ibm direction in order to stay relevant and and that's uh, sort of the other thing that you can do you can start moving into services which can still be a nice amount of money that you're getting but is not infinitely reproducible like pure software is and actually you know it's uh, good that
0: you brought that up because ultimately that is probably where microsoft is going considering their choice
1: of ceo yeah and and I mean supposedly some of their services are pretty decent I haven't used them myself but yeah I've heard really good things about them and, and I remember that you liked their database <laughs> though that isn't really a service yeah
0: yeah SQL server is pretty nice but then again <laughs> I was using SQL server back in the days of you know MySQL 3 and MySQL 4
1: so yeah, of course I guess it's nice improved since then and Microsoft has the other other advantage of they can attempt to diversify in other ways with their giant cash reserves. True. I guess what the problem that they run
0: into with things like Windows is, uh you know, transferring Windows over to being an actual surface-based thing rather than mm-hmm. a piece of software that you buy one time. They're going to have a hard time transitioning, I think. And, I mean, you see the shape of things to come when I believe it was... uh tablets under a specific size like eight inches or whatever they're giving away the phone os for free i think that's what it was
1: do you want to put that in the show notes
0: uh yeah i'll have to find that. i'll have to find that but uh yeah the fact that they want so many people you know they're having trouble getting people adopting their um you know their os for small form factors
1: yeah the market
0: share thing yeah the market share and and
1: that was uh that was a problem that they had had before with uh, Internet Explorer, but and they solved that problem by making it free. Supposedly, when they purchased uh, what became Internet Explorer originally, they bought it for like $2 million, and the, ra- the way that they were able to negotiate the price that low was that they had agreed to pay royalties for each copy sold to the people they were purchasing it from as a percentage. But then... Since the total, since the amount it was sold for was zero, they didn't have to pay any royalties. Oh, that's evil. Yeah. And there it goes working for Microsoft. <laughs> that's going to be a theme. I'm going to eliminate a tech company every single old podcast here. That's
0: going to be a theme of each episode. Pissing, <laughs> off, pissing off one of the big players so eventually we'll be unemployable by everybody.
1: Yeah, well, me more than you. I'm the, I'm the one that's saying it. <laughs> Next time will be my turn. Yeah. Well, I can hope. Then I have more places. Since software is something that you can sort of copy infinitely, and books at this point and movies at this point are both things that you can sort of copy infinitely, is there a similar problem to the race to the bottom with price that has... That, that that exists with books and movies as there is in indie development with software. So is are indie movie developers also having this problem?
0: I think they're having this problem, but it's not as profound. I mean, part of the difference with an app like, you know, an RSS reader or a podcast app is that it is one app that does one specific thing, where a book or a movie or a game is a specific piece of art. And what they're doing is they're not competing for utility, they're competing for time. So if there's a game that is truly great, you know, they're competing with other games that are great, but the experience is different. Ah. So I mean, so there is still kind of a race to the bottom in the sense that um, as more games and more movies and more books come out, that there are potentially an infinite number of things for people to do. Mm -hmm. It's just, I don't think it'll hit the absolute bottom where it's completely free. It's true that somebody could play a game that's free or read a book that's free, but there's going to be another game that's slightly different or slightly better that people, you know, will, people will rave about and, you know, somebody will shell out the money for it. Right. You are seeing the same type of market forces in that, you know, you're looking at the app store and there are games that are a dollar instead of $5 or $15 or $20 for something, you know, a game that's on another platform.
1: Mm -hmm. And yeah, Well, the iOS ones, it's, people refuse to buy the more expensive iOS apps and games, not because they're expensive, but just because they expect to pay less on the iOS app store than they do, like the, the Mac app store or, uh, just through Steam or something.
0: Well, it's not just that. It's also a value proposition that are you going to be getting, you know, paying $20 for a game versus $1 for a game? Are you going to get 20 times as much worth out of paying $20 for the game compared to paying $1 for
1: that a competing game? And most of the time, the answer is no. True. But a lot of times, like if you a lot of people have released essentially the same game on both platforms and had to reduce the price of the version that they sold on the uh, iOS device, just because that's the only way anyone would buy it. And you see crazy reviews, a review of, revolution 60 once where there's a demo portion and you can unlock the full game for like six bucks and someone's like oh i think i i I like the story the art is great but six dollars is just so expensive for a game
0: (laughs) well try squaresoft but then my understanding is they have decent
1: luck from it uh the squaresoft did
0: yeah well I mean, they seem to be doing well enough to justify releasing more and more games for the platform at the price they're asking for. Oh, well, good for them. What I can't help but wonder is that in the future that they'll do, you know, companies like Squaresoft will do games for, you know, the 360 or the PS3 or PS4 or Xbox One first, charge 50 or 60 bucks, and then whatever amount of money it takes for the porting effort, you know, it'll, it'll be considerably less. And then mm-hmm. just charge fifteen
1: bucks for it on the iOS App Store after you know three years. Sort of just like a a, dis- a general discount, like what happens with software normally, with what happens with games normally. I really wish Nintendo
0: would do an emulation app for iOS.
1: <laughs> That's never happening. Mm,
0: if they go the route of Sega.
1: But the, it seems sort of unlikely that they're going to do that. Part of what makes Nintendo Nintendo is that they always have control over their hardware, for better or for worse.
0: You could have said the same for Sega back in the eighties and nineties. Am I right? N-
1: Sega, Sega's ha- made good games, but they were never at the level of Nintendo's games, and they were ne- and Sega's hardware was never at the craziness level of Nintendo's hardware. They never did the sort of weird new things that integrated with gameplay like nintendo does
0: or even the super nintendo versus the sega genesis i mean the controllers and whatnot weren't that different but the internals from the super nintendo to my understanding were far more custom than what was in the genesis
1: that wouldn't surprise me
0: but i mean even still i mean i guess the question that's going to come up is whether or not game consoles are sustainable long term and will Nintendo be pushed out at some point if the uh, dedicated gaming market diminishes more?
1: Well, I think that that is almost completely related to how easy the PC installation process is on PCs, as well as how easy they can make selecting your hardware. The Steambox is a okay attempt at that, but part of the problem there was you still had to think about too many choices before you made your purchasing decision.
0: Yeah. What I'm actually excited about is seeing if Apple TV will go the route of a gaming platform in any kind
1: of way. That, I mean, do you mean sort of like the, the Amazon TV did? The Fire TV?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Have you, have you played with the Fire TV at all?
0: No, not at all. Yeah, neither have I, though, uh, my brother-in-law has one. Have you played with the phone? The Fire phone? No, have you? No, I was actually wondering what your thoughts were. I mean, Considering neither of us have uh, seen it in person, but I mean, what do you think of it when it was announced?
1: Uh, I thought that the the 3 d thing was sort of neat, if not really useful. The thing relating to tilt all this tilt stuff, I think it seems neat, but in practi- in in practical use probably won't be that good. Actually there, I, I, Marco wrote an article talking about when he implemented tilt scrolling for Instapaper and the design, de- design decisions that were there. And he said he thought that those were obvious, but I don't know that Amazon actually made similar decisions to make a good s- usage of the scrolling features.
0: Well, the difference as well is that they had more control of the hardware. They have something like four cameras on the device compared to you know him trying to do it with one camera.
1: Right. Well, well, that's not the scrolling though. That's, that's just the 3D part, right? Or is the scrolling also related to that?
0: Uh, that I'm not sure.
1: One of the major Amazon things was the, the, the tilt gestures for controlling a lot of the functionality.
0: I think it does integrate the camera in some way because I think what it's doing is that it's looking. I could be completely wrong on this, but I think it is trying to look to see relative to you what it's doing.
1: Okay, so the zero point is relative to you using the camera when you're scrolling?
0: I don't know. That's something we'll have to see on follow-up.
1: Okay. Maybe we can try and figure out someone that has one of these and play with it. Yeah. Do they or have just, them at
0: stores at all? Uh, my understanding, they have them at AT&T. I'll
1: have to do some research.
0: I could always have my company just get one, but... <laughs> <laughs> is that really worth it? No. <laughs> Absolutely not.
1: This is another example of the kinds of decisions that you have to make as an independent developer. Exactly. Okay, I think that uh we should wrap up the show. Yeah. So everyone, thanks for listening to Alien's Land here. Our our show notes can be found at alh.fm and you can follow us at Aliens Land here on Twitter. Have a great one. See you next time. So did you did you ever get your replacement fracture?
0: Uh no, I actually hadn't heard back from them yet. You know, they offered a replacement, which was nice. Yeah. One thing I'm glad about is I'm glad that it was user error on my part, rather than, you know, them completely screwing up.
1: I think that the default for a 5-inch should probably be no border. Here's the thing.
0: It's within the advanced settings. Like, Mm -hmm. let me guess, you just uploaded your icon and then went forward, you know, moved forward and ordered it. For me, I uploaded it, and then I went into their editor to crop the picture. And then I when see. I went to crop the picture, it had it on the border. It had it set to the border by default, and I didn't change it to the borderless one. So yeah, something to be careful about next time. Apparently. We didn't really get to talk about the pop filter. What do you think of yours?
1: You you heard my audio, right? Like the one that I sent you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Pied Piper I thought one? Yeah, there's I thought definitely there an a improvement. pretty big
0: enough difference.
1: And if you look at the waveform, especially, like it goes all the way to the top. Uh, without the filter, and it, it's pretty normal looking. With the filter,
0: yeah, I thought it was a good use of money. Uh, the issue I had mainly until today was uh, actually screwing it into the desk. I was hoping for a pop filter that could, uh, you know, screw into the microphone itself, but doesn't look like it
1: works that way. Oh, you're. Oh, okay. I have mine attached to my stand. My 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 microphone stand is thin enough that I can t- attach the pop filter to it.
0: Mm, okay and so
1: that's what i did though it does getting it getting it into the place a place that i like was a little bit tricky but i did eventually wrap it around and get it like right in front of the microphone in in sort of a way that i'm happy with
0: yeah i'm pretty happy with this now good good i hadn't even thought about attaching
1: it to my desk
0: (laughs) (laughs) see i had no choice i'm looking at it you know and there's a clamp here and i'm like what the hell what am i gonna do this isn't going to attach. And oh, oh, I'm supposed to attach to the desk. Okay. I actually had to look up videos on YouTube to see, you know, what they do with it. Uh Whatever model it is. <laughs> Since this is after show. I'll no. put it, I'll put it in the show notes anyway. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I had to look it up and see, you know, how do they even work together? And yeah, it's either microphone, standard desk. Yahoo. I hope the audio quality turns out better this time. Same bat time, same bat channel.